0: You're listening to Aperitivo, first broadcast on the 15th of November 2013 on Monocle 24. Aperitivo is brought to you by the Glenlivet. Hello from Midori House in London, and welcome to the final episode of Season 1 of Aperitivo, coming to you live from Studio 1 and from just down the road at the Monocle Cafe. I'm Tom Edwards. On today's programme, from Albania and Gibraltar to Israel and America, we'll review the day's top news stories with Robert Fox and Matthew Jamieson here in the studio. Then we meet chef extraordinaire Wolfgang Puck at the Monocle Cafe to talk about the joy of food
1: and his long climb up the culinary ladder. If you have passion for something and somebody can ignite your passion, you might not know. But if you come to the right circumstances, all of a sudden you will love it and get in it and become passionate about food because we all have to eat. A delicious interview in prospect, all that,
0: plus a look back at the best of this first season of Aperitivo, a bit of music and, of course, a look ahead to the rest of the day here on Monocle 24. That's all coming up on Aperitivo with me, Tom Edwards. (laughs) Plenty to enjoy, then, in the next hour here on the programme. Before we get started, let's catch up on the world news. Here, with a full bulletin for us, is Jonathan Wheatley. (laughs)
2: The U.S. aircraft carrier, the USS George Washington, has arrived in the Philippines to help deliver relief supplies to the survivors of Typhoon Haiyan. The carrier has 5,000 sailors and more than 80 aircraft on board and will make a significant difference to relief efforts following one of the strongest storms on record. There are already more than 300 U.S. soldiers on the ground, while well, U.S. General Paul Kennedy said that the George Washington was capable of dispensing large amounts of relief
1: right now all I see is this thing is, is proceeding on a timeline that I'm comfortable with. The JTF commander, uh, the Joint Task Force Command that has been stood up yesterday from the U.S. Pacific Command is flowing in tonight. Uh, that will increase our ability to, to coordinate with our international partners how we can make sure that we have the most comprehensive approach to distributing aid to the most needy people.
2: The United Nations, citing government figures, has put the latest death toll from the typhoon at 4,460, almost double the last official number given. Supporters of ousted Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi staged one of their largest protest marches in weeks today, a day after Egypt's military-backed government lifted a three-month state of emergency. Thousands of demonstrators marched in different neighbourhoods of Cairo and in several cities around the country. Morsi was ousted by the military on the 3rd of July after mass protests by Egyptians disillusioned with the elected Islamist presidency here in office. Following his ousting, supporters of Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamist group that backed him, staged daily protests and set up two ongoing sit-ins that the police and army cleared by force in August, killing hundreds. The Commonwealth summit has begun in Colombo with protests as a row over Sri Lanka's human rights record continues. The leaders of India, Mauritius and Canada have stayed away. The president of Sri Lanka has rejected criticism of his government's actions during the campaign which defeated Tamil Tiger rebels in 2009. During his opening address, Mahindra Rajapaksa said the Commonwealth must focus on development challenges rather than turning into a judgmental body.
1: We in the Commonwealth
3: should focus on development challenges confronting the majority of our member nations. I see compelling need for those who guide the destiny
1: of the Commonwealth to give serious thought to practical modalities focusing on social and economic issues.
2: In South Africa, the World Conference on Doping in Sport ended on Friday in Johannesburg. After three days of deliberation by some thousand delegates attending the event, the meeting saw a revised World Anti Doping Code adopted, which doubles the bans for cheats in sport. In Canada, Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne said the province won't step in until Toronto City Council clearly states that they, as she put it, lack the ability to function from the situation relating to Mayor Rob Ford, who's been a accused of having prostitutes, doing lines of cocaine at a bar and making sexual advances to other staffers.
1: Toronto is more than one
0: politician. It's more than one government. Ontario is more than one politician or one government. I understand that people are affected by what's happening at this moment but I want the people of Toronto to know that we will not be defined by this and we'll work together to ensure that the people's interests are served.
2: Ford has spent months denying he used crack cocaine, but eventually admitted he'd done so before confessing this week to buying illegal drugs and driving after drinking alcohol. But he has refused to stand down. And finally, next nearby in the United States, fossils of two dinosaurs found in Montana could fetch a potential record of $9 million when they're sold in New York next week. The so-called Montana Dueling Dinosaurs and Distinguished Fossils sale on Tuesday, that's this Tuesday coming up, will feature 70 lots including the two dinosaurs thought to have killed each other in fierce combat and that's the latest news on Monocle 24
0: Thank you very much indeed, uh, Jonathan Wheatley, with the news there. Uh, Jonathan, they told me that there was going to be a a distinguished fossil in the news broadcast. I thought they were talking about you. You are outrageous, Tom. Outrageous. Lovely stuff. Uh, That's Jonathan Wheatley. Uh, More from him, of course, at the bottom of the hour. Uh, Right now, you're listening to Aperitivo on Monocle24, and we'll be back just after this.
4: From London. To New York. To Tokyo. To Buenos Aires. To Zurich. Hong Kong, to Toronto,
1: to Berlin,
5: to Tel Aviv, to
0: Amsterdam,
4: all around the world this is Monocle24.
0: You are listening to Aperitivo. The time here in London is 18.06, uh, 13.06 in New York City. Uh, joining me here in the studio is uh, Matthew Jameson, consultant fellow at uh, London-based think tank Roussi. Uh, we'll be joined uh, in a few short moments as well by Robert Fox, defence editor at London's Evening Standard. Uh, but Matthew, uh, while I have you to myself, let's uh, <laughs> kick off talking about uh, Israel. Uh, President Shimon Peres today urged Israelis to show respect for America. This, of course, during tense negotiations between the US, its allies, Iran. Uh, Israel believes the Iranian nuclear program is an existential threat. Uh, Where are we at, do you think, in terms of US-Israeli? relations. Is the, the whole issue of Iran talks an intractable problem for both of those two parties? Well,
6: I think it's um it's actually a really interesting uh, situation that is developing in US-Israel relations. It's a very complex um, intricate relationship and it's extremely important for the state of Israel. And that's why I think you're seeing uh, Shimon Perez the president who is largely a ceremonial figure and doesn't have any political or executive authority coming out and saying that we must make sure that this um this sort of bumpy patch that has been encountered in U.S.-Israeli relations over the uh, idea of having a deal with Iran mustn't be allowed to get out of control and develop into a full-scale breach um, because it is such
0: a, a fundamentally important relationship for the Israelis. Uh, it intrigues me because we often talk about that U.S.-Israeli sort of axis I and mean, it's very mm-hmm. robust. The balance always seems to be struck fairly uh, well between them. Um Do you think this can strain that, though? I mean, it's so strong... Do you think that the fact that uh, some in America, though, will be saying, "Well, look, this is an opportunity to deal with Iran, which is such a pressing issue. Um, mm-hmm. We can't let our sort of reliance, our, our need to maintain that relationship, jeopardise
6: progress mm-hmm. on this other mm-hmm. front." Yeah, I mean, I think that there is um, certainly some uh, frustration within um, certain circles of uh, the Obama administration uh, with uh, the current prime minister in Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. They clearly don't get on. Uh, they didn't have a very good working relationship uh, Obama and Netanyahu from the beginning and it's Mm -hmm. just um, gone from bad to worse really Um, and I think there are some within the Democratic Party who probably feel pretty fed up with uh, you know the the Netanyahu government and always having to sort of uh, kowtow and would like to take a a more robust line um, against settlement expansion and so on but um, the the impressive um, reach of uh, the uh, organised pro-Israel supporters on Capitol Hill is amazing, and the Congress is really very, very strongly in tune with um, the pro-Israel agenda, and therefore uh, the President will have a very difficult time getting any sort of deal through the House or the Senate that doesn't have the
0: backing of uh, the current administration in Jerusalem. Absolutely. Well, uh, Robert Fox, Defence Editor at London's Evening Standard, has eased into his chair alongside us. Um, I'd like to ask you both then about the the sort of the state of uh, US-Israeli re- relationship slightly more broadly. I mean, in within DC, we've got Got a particular pro-Israel lobby that's very much about uh, well warfare in some cases, certainly containment at best, and no interest in uh, talks of any of any nature. Um, can that lobby be? Well, they probably can't be convinced. Can they even be challenged that it's maybe worth reconsidering some sort of uh, negotiations with with Iran? Robert, what, what's your view?
3: Obama doesn't seem to be set to do it. He doesn't seem to know how to do it. He caves in to this lobby. Uh, as you were saying in the previous discussion, I absolutely agree with every word that was said about it. But oddly, what I think is getting very difficult for the pro-Israeli lobby, and I've been lobbied like mad here in the UK and London on this very matter of Iran settlements and so forth, is that I think some sort of deal with Iran is condemned to succeed. And there are real holdouts, and one is APEC and uh, the uh, people like BICOM uh, in the UK And you will hear a lot from them. And, of course, there is the role of the French. But the French are playing a very peculiar game. Their game is not pro-Israel, but it is actually schmoozing up to the Gulf uh, uh, Arabs, the GCC. It's not really so much the GCC. They want to flog a hell of a lot of arms to the United Arab Emirates and a bit to Qatar. But it's really the UAE. Because if they don't do that, the whole of their defense budget goes up in flames. It's 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 as simple as that. Because these sales to the UAE and to India, uh, the whole development of the Rafale uh, aircraft program and potentially males, that is, medium altitude um Uh, 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 UAVs, uh, drones, are predicated on this. And nobody spotted this because they are playing into their new defense engagement, strategic engagement, particularly with Abu Dhabi and uh, Dubai, by just saying, no, no, no. But we've got these two adept um, negotiators in the new president in Iran and his foreign minister, and they can schmooze, they speak English, they sound plausible, they're coming up with a deal. It's everything that everybody wanted about two or three years ago. But I think in terms of the Republican uh, Party, I think there's a dog that hasn't really barked yet. And they're the oldsters, the really old, experienced team. And they're still around in the background. No, of course, I don't mean Rumsfeld and Cheney <laughs> and so on. But I mean people like uh, Baker. James mm-hmm. Baker, mm-hmm. who's still been saying, and, and Bob Gates. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the commentary this week, America's uh, bid to be uh, a global force by full spectrum dominance is much diminished if you look at what's happening to the defense budget. It's not only that the defense budget is coming down, but as it has shown, been shown to be coming down, it's been shown to have a hell of a lot of wastage. There's a lot of scum around the rim of that mm-hmm. particular bath.
0: Uh, and I just wonder, Matthew. I mean, do you sort of go, go along with that? You were nodding sagely. Uh, does, does that all sort of ring true with you? Yes. I mean, I, I think that uh, there is a huge
6: problem about um, American power projection now coming uh, through with the sequester and how they are going to carry on. You know, their sort of the their reach and their role in the world. Um, and like Robert said, um, you know, there is that strand, that old strand in the Republican Party of the sort of the level-headed, traditional realists, people like Brent Scowcroft, who uh, was the uh, National Security Advisor to Bush Senior, and James Baker, the Secretary of State, Colin Powell, even Condoleezza Rice, who actually was the one who sort of steered the Bush administration in the second term away from a more confrontationalist approach than, than it had been in the first term. So I, I think, you know, that Washington would really like to get a deal done on this matter, um, and uh, they could have last weekend if it hadn't have been for
0: the French, and I think they're going to keep on pressing on that front. In, intriguing, mean Robert, you said it's sort of condemned to success, if we do see some sort of negotiation succeed, however, you know, whatever they look like in the final analysis, what do you think that means if we just consider, you know, the, the likelihood of any sort of Israeli action against Iran at some point in the future? Do you think they would be um, – does it render them then incapable of doing so? I mean, I can't see how the US could, could ever greenlight some sort of action if these negotiations make some progress. Would that then – would that action, that, that option
3: for Israel just be off the table for, for good? Tom, they're desperate – this is the Israeli lobbyists who approach uh, the likes of, of of we three. They're desperate to explain that they could still do it. If they have to, they really could do it. And they really could do it without the Americans. But um, the more intelligent of them get into sort of um, Rumsfeldian diplomatic theory, you know, the world of the unknown unknowns. <laughs> And I don't think the world will support, and the smarter of them know this uh, Israeli going it alone on the basis of a hyper- hypothetical.
0: Mm. Uh, Matthew, do you agree with that? Is it just something yes. that we we basically can't see for? Um, I some mean, time I
6: think that you know a lot of sensible people in Israel, especially from what I picked up last week uh, in my visit there, um would really very much like to avoid getting into the situation of having to do any kind of military action against Iran because the the, the price is so high, especially when you factor in Hezbollah and what could happen in the north. Um uh, So there there is divisions within the the military and national security establishment within Israel itself about the the
0: proper approach to this issue. Uh, I'd like to move on and talk a little bit about Albania. Uh, the country's Ooh. Prime Minister, <laughs> Eddie Rama, has today rejected a US request uh, to allow destruction of Syri- Syrian chemical weapons on its soil. Uh, the Prime Minister says uh, Albania is not equipped to handle such a process. Uh, with the deal to remove a Syria stockpile, it was agreed to destroy them outside the country. Of course, Albania seemed to be the country of choice. Um, it, it obviously looks now politically rather difficult for Rama to agree to this. Plus, he's suggesting they don't really have the capacity, the expertise. Um, I wonder, if not Albania... Where does this happen? <laughs> Excuse
3: me, I think we have to say about poor old Albania just by being a, a newcomer to NATO and to the Western conspectus, as it were, so you become their dustbin. Um, Uh, I have a great deal of sympathy for their position because the infrastructure is pretty fragile. There have been tremendous efforts going on there, but it is mafia-ridden. And one of the things that the mafias, particularly in southern Europe, like to deal in is nuclear waste. Mm -hmm. And I think they're being very sensible. They're right to sound a, 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 a note of caution. But goodness, what are they going to do? I hope the Americans driving this don't go for another weak brother as it were like moldova or kazakhstan or which is which is what you could do which is or or azerbaijan these are the sort of places of choice because they are deemed to be out of out of the way and out of the way of the prying eyes of the media and particularly the new media media twitter and facebook and so on but don't you bet on it i think it's a pretty it's a pretty cheapskate move this one well, who, who would ever say yes there, Matthew? I mean, this is the kind of thing, it, it's, yes. it's,
0: a, it's surely a sort of losing scenario. I can't imagine that anyone, could. some people seem to possibly have the capacity, people say the French might, but politically <gasps> yeah. it would just be unimaginable. Well, who, who could possibly say yes? Uh, it's the most bizarre
6: situation, really, and, um, you know, poor Albania being put in it, um, because, like you say, who, who could, you know, do such a thing and who would want to do it? I, I did read about France and that possibly they could. I think, actually, it perhaps should be maybe a leading power in NATO, Um, uh, who takes this responsibility rather than, you know, sort of passing the back off into, you know, one of the sort of smaller brothers, so to speak, um, and actually steps up and takes some responsibility on this because it is such a a, a difficult, uh, but ultimately
0: such an important uh, matter that it requires some real leadership. Robert, is there any any chance that one of those bigger players will decide that it's sort of politically expedient to do so, or do you think this could
3: just be... It could sort of drag on for a while. Do you think if Scotland secedes (laughs) in the (laughs) referendum, that Mr. Cameron will vote to the Highlands as as, as the repository? It's all pretty murky, dirty stuff, and it just flags up how filthy the planet is. Look at uh, American and Russian. Uh, ability or inability to deal with, with nuclear waste, with, with, with even, with, with, with even uh, the piles of uh, the cores of, of mm-hmm. nuclear submarines. Um, one thing that this does flag up, though, is that actually the disposal of chemical weapons, I don't think the preparation was anything like as advanced as we're seeing in Syria, but the disposal of chemical weapons in Iraq up until about 1994 was pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. They did a good job there, mind you. A lot of the stuff was, oh, well, it wasn't that old because it had been used or prepared for use in the Iran Iraq that terrible contest, where there were, now it appears that it was an or a copious use of gas and chemi- chemical weapons. So I think they're to be going to see my old friend. Uh, Formerly the director of uh, uh, chemical weapons specia- uh, specialities at Porton Down, Mr. Ron Manley, and find out how he did it. <laughs> because I, I think w- this is a learning curve. And as Matthew says, it is a very, very important uh, learning curve. And actually, given security, given the state of the infrastructure and given the state of the terrain in Albania, which I've experienced quite a bit, I mean, shoving them down either old ore or coal mines is just absolutely ridiculous. And I think it's rather patronizing. It's rather absurd. And you should say to the IAEA, grow
0: up of it. Wonderful stuff. Uh, We're going to take a very short break. You're with Aperitivo here on Monocle24 with me, Tom Edwards. I'm with Robert Fox uh, and uh, Matthew Jameson. When we return, we'll discuss whose side the European Commission came down on in the spat between the UK and Spain over Gibraltar.
4: The Glenlivet was the first single malt to successfully cross the Atlantic Ocean. And since that first journey, the world-renowned whisky has never looked back. Now, master distiller Alan Winchester is inviting their global community of whiskey connoisseurs, the guardians of the Glenlivet, to help create their next limited edition whiskey. To discover more and write the next chapter of the legacy, join the at the Glen The Glenlivet, the single malt that started it all. Enjoy responsibly.
6: Are you tired of overcooked and overrated culinary trends that never quite hit the spot? Fed up of being spoon-fed half-baked ideas on the next big thing? Then tune into the menu with me, Markus Hippi. Every week we introduce you to the world's top makers and shakers, cocktail creators and the best bread makers as we uncover gourmet street food, big-time baristas and wily wineries.
1: Once upon a time, we were seen with disdain. But over the years, that culture had gotten so popular, it's iconic now.
6: If we're serving decent food in East London, you don't have any problem getting custom in. And I worked in the West End for years, you know. I mean, it's not always packed in the West End, trust me. This is the show that discovers how coffee can change a country and how chocolate can make us live longer, all in the search for exciting local food producers and the most original entrepreneurs.
4: That's The Menu every Friday at 1900 hours London time.
0: Welcome back to Aperitivo here on Monaco 24. Still with me here in Studio One is Robert Fox, Defence Editor at London's Evening Standard and Matthew Jameson, Consultant Fellow at RUSI. We move now to The Rock. Gibraltar, of course, that most contentious and incendiary of uh, outcrops around the Mediterranean. Today, the European Commission has ruled Spain did not breach any rules and regs with its heavy-handed border controls that many, certainly here in the UK and in Gibraltar suggested, were politically motivated. Uh, High fees to get in and out, uh, spurious border checks, uh, all apparently above board. Um, what do you both make of, of, of this ruling? Surprised or unsurprised, perhaps? Uh,
6: well, I think it's a sort of a classic fudge, actually. I wasn't really um, surprised in the sense that, um, you know, typical of the Commission to try to wriggle out of something. Um, uh, it's a, it's irritating um, and, and frustrating because, quite clearly, I think these checks... Um, do uh, not serve really the, the, the purpose that they're made out, and they're just increasingly designed to make life difficult uh, and to try to strangle certain economic aspects of life uh, in Gibraltar. So it's disappointing on that front. Um, uh, it's a pity that the commission couldn't have sort of come down one way or the other, really, because even though they said that it didn't violate uh, the rules, they were also saying that um, uh, Spain, uh, you know, it, it even though it hadn't acted unlawfully. Um, it was probably not in keeping
0: with the spirit of it. Oh, that, the, the, old, the old chestnut about in the spirit. Uh, Robert, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, the, Spain is suggesting now that the, the EU has sort of effectively backed its position, which I think it's fairly safe to say it hasn't explicitly. Um, where, where, where do you think that this leaves Spain in particular? Their rhetoric's interesting. And, of course, they still have their own sort of Gibraltar's in Africa, the, of course. to Malia, absolutely, which uh, well, we they uh, never talk uh, about. Uh, exactly. How, do they, exactly get, how so. do they get away with framing this, this um,
3: discussion and never mentioning those uh, cases? There's a bit of magic realism in this. (laughs) And I think it is very like the dispute over the Malvinas, Falklands, Falklands, Malvinas, where origins are murky. They're less murky in the case of Gibraltar. I mean, Gibraltar was grabbed by um, the Royal Marines, let us say, in 1704 and guaranteed by the Treaty of Utrecht 1713, I think it was, but uh, certainly at the end of the War of Spanish Succession. Um, That belongs to. A different era that I grant you and organizations like the EU like as indeed does the UN they absolutely loathe all this they they think and particularly when the Brits are involved um, that it smacks of old style British imperialism not that Spain of course ever had an empire in which the sun never (laughs) set but um, I think it was the first of that particular category it's just weird But what is so very interesting about this, as Matthew was saying, is I think folded into it are a lot of probably quite nasty local disputes which are legal and about legality. And there's a lot that isn't about legality. And I don't mean people smuggling. I think it's other smuggling. It's Mm. always been a nest and entrepot. Uh, The Italian mafias have liked it. Uh, And the fact that this was triggered by the 70 blocks being dropped and creating another bar- a barrier, a reef, which does seem strange without uh, consultation, sure ain't just about fishing. Mm. Intriguing. Uh,
0: I think that one's one we'll have to unearth a little bit more detail about
3: in the future. I, I want to talk a little bit about
0: well, another man who is occasionally mired in the murkier side of the political uh, spectrum, Silvio Berlusconi of course, um, still struggling to control his own uh, party. They have a big meeting this weekend. Uh, they may Plan to readopt the Forza Italia name. Uh, I just wonder. A semantic change is that going to do him any good, or is his is his is he is he a busted flush <laughs> once and for all, uh, Matthew? What, what do you think?
6: Well, uh, he's you know I I wouldn't put anything past him really. He's a great survivor. He's you know I think a sort of a uh, the vampire of Italian politics. You'll only really be able to know he's gone when you've driven a stake through <laughs> his heart. Um, so I I wouldn't put anything past him. Um, but I mean it's just so ridiculous, and uh, he, the man has absolutely no shame whatsoever, and has. Lost any sense of dignity, uh, you know, a long time ago. So, did he a... <laughs> if, if you did to begin with, so really, you know, I think it's probably just uh, another inglorious uh, uh, sort of, you know, a, a
0: footnote in this long-running saga. If it is just epitaph, though, it'll be sad, won't it, Robert? Once he's he's gone, this is a man. He's kind of a bit like a sort of European Rob Ford. <laughs> he's such a
3: such a such a generous man when it comes to news headlines. Well, you'd be sorry to see him go, wouldn't you? Well. I think he's had his epitaph, a fitting epitaph, uh, done by the same hand that did the most staggering epitaph of his mentor, Giulio Andriotti, the longest-serving uh, uh, statesman in Italy post-war, seven, eight times prime minister, foreign minister, you name it, and charged with um, uh, association with mafia, the mafia over a particularly nasty crime, a murder of a journalist, in fact. So there we are. Um, just to cut to the chase... Uh, Andreotti's career was celebrated only in the way that the Italians can in a most wonderful film called Il Divo. A Beautiful drama documentary, absolutely brilliant. Bang the nails home. Um, more than any editorial, any documentary ever could do. The same hand, and I just forget who it is, I mean, it is the same actor, has done a wonderful film called La Grande Bellezza. And La Grande Bellezza is the bookend to La La Dolce Vita, which is very much my thing, opened my era of working in Italy. I still work in Italy a great deal and love it a lot. I'm very sad about what's going on. But La Grande Bellezza was the epitaph. It is hollow enjoyment that doesn't become enjoyment at all. Because why Berlusconi has not realized he is utterly irrelevant, is here is the man by his business practices, fair or foul, they've been jolly successful. They've made him about the richest man in Southern Europe. But now look at the dismal performance of the Italian economy because of the parity in populations, which, by the way, no longer exists, but they've always compared themselves with, with Britain. That's the thing I always had to do, live with, whether the Italian <laughs> economy was going to do il grande sorpasso, overtake uh, the British economy. Now it's down the tubes. <laughs> British economy is 1.8% growth, but it is quite something. Italy recorded for the third or fourth quarter in a row a contraction of the economy, and it's much worse than Greece because it is a much bigger economy. If you look at things like youth uh, unemployment, the figures are dire. And a lot of that has been caused by what was happening or not happening on Mr. Bellasconi's watch. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid Italians may be very romantic, but they're super realists and they know it. Signor Bellasconi to say toast. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point to leave that one. Uh, just finally, I want to talk
0: a little bit about, uh, well, uh, you mentioned sort of the, the perils of journalism. At some points in Italy, they've been very grave indeed, Robert. Um, American writers, there's a, in, an intriguing report from uh, Penn about uh, this notion that uh, some writers are actually kind of self-censoring post-Snowden, post-NSA, concerns about security. Um, that's a pretty alarming uh, picture to paint, isn't it, Matthew? Uh, do you think that that's something very grave and an unforeseeable consequence, perhaps, of all of this uh, talk about um, security and observation and snooping and journalists mm. and whistleblowers? Um this would be really bad news, wouldn't it, if writers lost some of their edge?
6: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's always um, something to be worried about when you know cultural, um, artistic, uh, and intellectual freedom is eroded, um, and certainly journalism is, is such an important bedrock of a, of a free uh, democracy. Um, uh, so it, it it is unfortunate. It's, it's disturbing, you know, that certain journalists feel as though that the situation is so bad that it would preclude them from carrying out certain investigations or research and work because they would all of a sudden start to be monitored and um, it does throw up the interesting questions about how to get that balance right, so this continuing balance between security on the one hand, because we do live in a very dangerous world and there are a lot of uh, issues that need to be dealt with um, by intelligence services but also uh, privacy of the individual and freedom of expression um, so it's it's another, it's another more grist to the mill really to
0: see how we can find that balance. Uh, Robert, one in six, aid apparently, said that they effectively self-censor. Is this some kind of awful, tacit... Victory, but by the NSA
3: ultimately. Well, I, I've worked in Italy um, for an Italian paper just at the beginning of the anni di piombo, the um, the years of lead, and two of my colleagues were murdered uh, on the paper and around the paper. Um, and there was this terrific precept of auto censura, of self censorship because you need it for your own security, you never know who's listening. Well, that's the basis on which I practiced most of my journalism. It didn't stop me all but being kicked out of the BBC. <laughs> and I've had a pretty good week. I've been completely indiscreet in revealing what some of my my more more more. more, more, more um, protected sources have been telling me the truth about Chilcot, uh, the Chilcot inquiry into Iraq, and I had a real rant yesterday in The Standard about the terrible deterioration of the narcotic situation in, um, in uh um, Afghanistan. I've got a, 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 a stropogram from the Foreign Office about that. <laughs> not correcting a single fact, of course. So, all in all, I think that life is pretty good and you keep on going. No, you just have to be sensible about this. I'm a bit sad that you go to Penn and you have to have a poll and you do this. The thing is that, you know, if you're a cat that walks by itself, which I've <laughs> been most of my 46 years in journalism, you know how to be darn careful and you have to make sure that it's your shadow that's following you and not somebody else's. But, um... That's why the the serious side of it is a very funny side of it. I go and rant and rave at the security services and the army in particular about relations with the press. I said, the people who are going to make the real news now, you can have the law, you can throw the book at them, you can have the Leveson inquiry, which by the way should have been about news, not just Mm -hmm. hacking in tabloid newspapers. It's a great time for the free spirits and the new platforms allow this to happen. We are going to have the new Voltaire's, the new Rajan Kapuscinski's, the new Martha Gellhorn's because you just get out there and say it. This is the interesting thing and I would like to conclude this last uh, uh, run of the, uh, of the last of this run of Aperitiva with the fact that we've got on Tuesday or Wednesday anyway, the 19th of November the 150th anniversary of the Gettysburg Address. Now, there is a man who didn't talk security. There is a man who could say all about his country, why it was going to war, what it stood for and what it should aspire to in the future in 245 words. And Twitter was uh, 125 or 130 years (laughs) ahead of that. That's Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address is an example of transparency. We're now getting far too befuddled and coddled by our own sense of security. The security debate, yes, it's shocking, but people have always listened in. People have always spied. I've always reckoned that half my phone calls, and most of them actually are just twaddle, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 have been listened to or people pick them up. There are a lot of people that don't like what you do. I did get a lot of dirt and dog mess through my front door the other day, <laughs> which is the first time it's happened in journalism. But that goes with the turf. If you do this, this sort of thing is happening. Thank goodness we are in Britain, America, France and Western Europe, because, you know, when my with colleagues that uh, grew up in Eastern Germany, but also the kind of thing that Mr. Cameron rather wisely is trying to battle against in Sri Lanka, uh, that's pretty dreadful. There are real, there are real uh, windmills to be tilted at and not, sorry, mixing the Don Quixote <laughs> not Shadow Windmills if you see what I mean I'm quite worried that Penn goes that road mm. because it will it will be it's too much to do with litigation yeah. and sometimes we journalists absolutely have to act out the law and beyond the law
0: mm. wonderful stuff mm. uh, on that note uh, we're going to leave it there two of my favourite aperitivo oh, guests okay. uh, thanks to Robert Fox <laughs> and Matthew Jameson uh, thank you both uh, very much indeed for joining us here at Midori House for this last run for now of uh, aperitivo thanks Excellent. to you both Goodbye. You.
4: London New York Tokyo. This is monocle 24. London, New York, Tokyo. To Monocle Monaco 24. Londres, Nova York, Tokyo. London, New York, Tokyo. London, New York, Tokyo. Monaco
0: Londino, New York, Tokyo.
4: This, this is, is monocle 24. 24.
0: Plenty still ahead in the second half of today's programme. We'll be heading to the Monocle Café with world-famous chef Wolfgang Puck. Uh, look back at some of the highlights of season one of this programme and we'll preview what's coming up later today on the Globalist Asia and Monaco Daily. Before all of that, uh, let's hear from Jonathan Wheatley. He's here with the World News Headlines.
2: Thanks very much. The US aircraft carrier, the USS George Washington, has arrived in the Philippines to help deliver relief supplies to the survivors of Typhoon Haiyan. The UN, citing government figures, has now put the latest death toll from the typhoon at four. 4,460. Supporters of the ousted Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi have staged one of their largest protest marches in weeks today, a day after Egypt's military-backed government lifted a three-month state of emergency. Thousands of demonstrators marched in different neighbourhoods of Cairo and in several cities around the country. The Commonwealth summit has begun in Colombo with protests. As a row over Sri Lanka's human rights record continues, the leaders of India, Mauritius and Canada have stayed away. And in South Africa, the World Conference on Doping in Sport ended on Friday in Johannesburg, After three days of deliberation by some 1,000 delegates attending the event, the meeting saw a revised World Anti-Doping Code adopted, which doubles the ban for cheats in sport. And for the moment, that's the latest news from Monocle 24.
0: Thank you very much indeed, uh, Jonathan. Uh, more news from Jonathan, of course, at the top of the hour. You're with Aperitivo on Monaco 24, uh, 2236 in Moscow, 1836 here in London. Uh, time now to head down to the Monaco Cafe. On today's programme, we're meeting Wolfgang Puck, chef extraordinaire. In Wolfgang's long and distinguished career, he's been credited with nothing less than changing the way Americans cook and eat. His culinary empire now includes dozens of restaurants, catering interests, philanthropic endeavours, and charitable organisations. Austrian born uh, Wolfgang, who's now based in California, I stopped by the cafe just a little earlier to catch up with our editor Andrew Tuck. Andrew asked Wolfgang how he kept control of his growing empire.
1: I call our business a little family business really because I have so many great people with me for so many years. Like I have people who work with me for 30 years and then we always have new people too. So I think I control it pretty well because we don't open restaurants if we don't have a chef and a manager. If somebody tells me you want to come to uh, India and open a restaurant, uh, I would say, well, I don't have a chef now, maybe in three years. So we could open ten times more, but I think I goes really slowly. You know, we have 22 restaurants, but I'm uh, in the restaurant business for many years, and the first one opened in 1982, so which is 32 years ago, basically now. And then I think we're going to open like about one a year now. That's about as much as we can do, because at the end of the day, if I don't have the talent, it wouldn't be worth to open a restaurant. Now you're
5: sitting here in front of me in your chef's whites, uh, you're still obviously a man who likes to get his hands yeah. dirty with the flour and cutting the meat, how important is that as you become to the, the top of this, as you just described a very big empire, to still be the man who knows actually how the dishes are made and still be able to go into the chef and, and, the, and the shout when you yeah. need to. I
1: exactly, you, you know, know what is so important to me, even in Los Angeles, I still go to the farmers market, I still go to the fish market. I always have to keep a pulse on it. That's why I check out on the restaurants. And I think it's really important to watch out and that all the employees know, oh, Wolfgang gonna show up, so we always have to be at our best. And I don't tell them I'm coming many times, you know, I just show up, but I think, we have so many really good people working for us now it's really a culture we created so people know they have to buy the best uh, ingredients and try not to screw them up afterwards and in a dining room i told them it's hospitality you know people come to us and they pay to come for dinner they pay to come for lunch you know if you invite them to your house how would you treat them you would treat them very nicely but you don't have to pay so now they pay we even have to be much nicer
5: (laughs) Now, you were born in Austria, you emigrated to America, you've created much of the, your business out of California, mm-hmm. and perhaps the most famous restaurant there, uh, Spago, which is, yeah. like, really became an extraordinary, it's just something everybody knew about. Yeah. Could this story have been happened in Europe, or is it because that, that combination of Hollywood glamour, of the money you get in California, of European kind of expertise coming into town, is it a very American
1: story? You know, it is really about timing. You know, I think when I came to California, it was probably the right time. It was probably the right moment. There were very few restaurants. It's just like here in London, you know. You had people like Marco Pia White who became famous and went away. You have some other, Gordon Ramsay, who all went off to television, basically. But I think I stay in the restaurant business. And to me, longevity is really the most important thing and the hardest to accomplish because... Having a restaurant like Aspago for 32 years, it's really an amazing thing and still be relevant. Like last year, I closed down for three months and we remodeled the whole restaurant. There has to be an evolution to stay in business. And if you stay the same, sooner or later you fade into the sunset.
5: Now, trends in food change very fast. Have you had to adapt over the years? You know, we're seeing the seasonal, you know, the, the more modest way of cooking, yeah. it seems to be taking over a little bit. Where, where do you think it's going? Well, and what, what are you ch- doing to change with think,
1: I think, you know, I grew up in California, everywhere in America, everybody is talking about farm to table ingredients. You know, I grew up on a farm, so there was no other way. When I opened Spargo, I drove two hours to a farm, the Chino farm, to pick up the best vegetables, the best berries, melon, or corn whatever it was. So I really like that when you cook, I want to know what I eat. I want to see what I eat and I want to know what I eat and I want to get that taste. So if it's a simple tomato or if it's a, a turbo or if it's a good steak, I wanna see the steak. I don't smother the steak with a lot of sauces because to me, great meat, maybe with a little salt, maybe with a little touch of sauce to enhance it, but not you don't need more. So I think the purity of the ingredients to me is the most important thing.
5: Now Wolfgang, your restaurants are endlessly kind of treated as the best in the world. You're in all those charts. But there's some of those restaurants in there seem to be as much about science these days. Do you look at with MGI with what they're doing or do you think
1: That will pass. No, you know, every little thing has, every moment in a way has good and bad things. And I think this more molecular gastronomy, what they call it, some of the things who will come out of that are probably going to stay. Most of this will go away. When you look back in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, Nouvelle Cuisine was all the rage. Today, nobody even mentioned the word. They had smaller portions. That's probably one of the only things which states that you have tasting menus. That's probably, I think for me, the most uh, important legacy of Nouvelle Cuisine is tasting menus. But the rest, we cook differently today.
5: I was looking at how much money you've given to charitable causes over the last few years. Millions of dollars. Tell me why you feel it's important
1: to be a a philanthropist as well. Well, I always told my people in the restaurants, if we want the people to be interested in our restaurant, we have to be interested in them. So we have very good customers who come to the restaurant. So if they do something charitable, we always help them. But we also do a lot of things, like for Meals on Wheels, which is uh, food for elderly people who are homebound, who have nothing, or younger people who are sick, who cannot get any food. For example, our newest thing, not for me new, but for my wife, uh, we have a school in Ethiopia a vocational school where we train young people to do computer work, to do fabrics, to make clothes and everything. And we just did a benefit in Los Angeles and we had Babyface Edmond singing, we had Vittorio Grigolo singing, and so we had a great party with all the supermodels like Naomi Campbell and Amber Valletta and so on and uh, uh, Kanye West came with Kim Kardashian. And so we had a really a great party, but the most important thing is we raised a million dollars. So a million dollars now will work, make the school in Ethiopia work for three years. The kids gonna get food, they're gonna have electricity, they're gonna have water, and uh, mostly they get a great education. And tell me that transformation you see also of people who come
5: through your kitchens. The kitchen often seems to be a place where actually guys who are a bit wild, can redeem themselves suddenly with cooking. Do you see the, the transformation that can happen
1: when somebody becomes a chef? You know, if you have passion for something and somebody can ignite your passion, you might not know, but if you come to the right circumstances, all of a sudden you will love it and get in it and become passionate about food because we all have to eat. I have an eight year old boy, all of a sudden he became passionate about football guess where I spent this summer my vacation? In Manchester. He went to Manchester United summer camp for football and I told him, next year he goes alone, I'm not coming back, he said, okay. (laughs) But it's interesting, all of a sudden he got this passion for football, which is not really the big American sport. And uh, it's so into it, and cooking is the same. I remember when I was a young kid, I started when I was 14, and I said, oh, I don't know if I'm gonna do that for the rest of my life. But when I was 19, I started at a restaurant in the south of France, in Provence, called Beaumaniere. And there the owner was 72 years old. And he was not only the chef, but he was the owner of the restaurant. They also had a hotel. He was the mayor of the town. He painted. He wrote cookbooks. I said I want to be like this guy, and I like the way he thought about cooking. That it wasn't an exact recipe. He one day he added a little lemon juice to that, or a little cayenne pepper to that, and he made it always a little bit different. And I think this is really exciting. And most importantly, he used the best product. As you bounce around the world where do you think has the most
5: exciting food story to tell at the moment you're in London a city that 20 years ago everybody thought was like the worst place to eat in the world suddenly we've got everybody coming here thinking it's actually a bit of a
1: culinary hotspot but where for you are the places to watch you know there are so many different places I really believe that uh, uh, London today is second to none and it is probably today one of the most interesting cities now Los Angeles is a really great city, too, because we have so many ethnic parts of the city, like Chinese restaurants uh, everywhere, you know. Big ones, like in Hong Kong, with great dim sum places, great baking duck places. So I think LA is one of the great food cities in the world. Even people don't think so about it because it is so spread out. You know, if you want to go to Little Saigon, you have to drive an hour, so even in, with no traffic, so
5: and finally just tell me when you go home now tell me the truth are you a a chef when you go home as well or do you get your wife to put some dinner on for you you know
1: my wife is Ethiopian I like Ethiopian food but only once in a while and she does it really well so I really cook at home but simple food like I take my kids I have two young boys seven and eight and they go go with me to the farmer's market sometimes I even take them to the fish market we taste the food first and then I roast the chicken and I steam some fresh vegetables make a good salad And both boys, the oldest for sure, but the younger boys, they love uh, balsamic vinegar on their salad. They said, oh, a little more olive oil, Papa. Then my eight-year-old, as soon as truffle season comes, he says, Papa, why are there no truffles on the pasta today? (laughs) So they have become quite a little gourmet, too. But I love to cook. I like the process of cooking. To me, it's very relaxing.
5: Well, it sounds amazing to be growing up in the Puck hut household. Anyway, Wolfgang, thank you so much for taking your time out. Thank you. I know you're a very busy schedule to come and see us. Thank you.
0: And that's what it sounds like when Puck meets Tuck. Our editor, Andrew Tuck, uh, with chef and entrepreneur Wolfgang Puck at the Monocle Cafe. Up next, we'll look at some of the very best moments
4: of season one of Aperitivo. Inspiring the likes of Charles Dickens since 1824, the Glenlivet may be the definitive Speyside single malt whiskey, but that's just one chapter of the story. Master distiller, Alan Winchester, is inviting the Glenlivet's global community of whiskey connoisseurs to help curate the flavors of their next limited edition whiskey, The Guardian's Chapter. To discover more, join the guardians at theglenlivet.com. The Glenlivet, the single malt that started it all. Enjoy responsibly.
6: Culture on Monocle 24 is untouchable. Go on, just try and do it. Try and grab a handful of the top-grade cultural radio that we're dishing out and see if you can touch it. Well, exactly. Luckily, though, you can feel it. Feel the passion of the unusually button-bright presentation.
4: It's a fantastic contrast, and it's one of those ones that ask you to look at the brushwork, to look just at the canvas...
6: Feel the craftsmanship in the breathtaking live Midori House sessions. You know, I
2: consider myself an entertainer, so I'm really about communication. I'm not really about expressing myself so much as trying to communicate with people and bring them to tears or bring them to laughter or what have you. Feel the lovingly
6: hand-stitched production and, most of all, feel the love of art. It's there and it's true, but it's really only a small part of his work. Feel the love of fiction, feel the love of film, feel the love of music, feel the love generally.
4: It is the most extraordinary collation of works that you would never normally see together.
6: Why not invite me round? Culture with Robert Bound is a well-behaved house guest and a joy to entertain.
4: That's Culture with Robert Bound, premiering every Monday at 1900 hours UK time, right here on Monocle 24.
0: Welcome back. You're with Aperitivo with me, Tom Edwards, here on Monocle 24. We're going to take a little look back now at some of the highlights of this first season of Aperitivo. The moments that made us laugh, think, maybe even cry a little. Uh, Here's a bit of what you've missed from the past season. There is surely serious work going on on the detail here. If you, if you got inside the room, you would discover two things. One is very large numbers of sheets of paper, because this is about words. It really is about details. It's about where commas are sometimes. So there's a lot of very, very detailed text work going on. The other thing is people are on the phone the whole time. They're on the phone mostly back home to make sure that what they're doing if they're shifting their position, that everybody back home knows how they're shifting it, how far they're shifting it, in which direction, and nobody is taking the skids out from underneath them while they're doing it.
5: It means a huge amount of families. We've been inundated today and last night with emails from all over the world from people desperate saying... Do you think, you know, my father's painting might be amongst these? Do you think my mother's painting might be there? I think my grandfather's painting. It, there's a real sense of, of hope that something that because these were these were taken from people in the most terrible circumstances. Their lives were absolutely ruptured and destroyed the life that they had was destroyed even if the sometimes the particular lives were destroyed as well. so it means a huge amount it's not people talk about they're worth nobody knows what these paintings are worth they say they're worth one point something billion but actually the, the, the value to the families is, a, is an emotional value and it's uh, it's beyond c- calculation. So it's up to me to communicate. And the only way to communicate is by being utterly, utterly fallible and vulnerable, by metaphorically becoming completely and utterly naked and putting yourself there, by showing enormous passion, enormous eccentricity, lots of yelling and screaming in hand, and then using this stupid old camera. It's very, very cumbersome. Parts of it are 50 years old. I'm often using shutter speeds of four or five seconds standing in a gale on top of a mountain. In that struggle, in that physical, mental and that emotional struggle, people really see me. They really see I'm desperate to make them icons. I'm desperate to put them on a pedestal and they give themselves to me. 90% of them aren't necessarily aware of what a camera is. They're also not necessarily aware of what what I'm going to do with the pictures. But what they did feel is that, and I'm going to be a bit melodramatic, is that I love them. I thought they were beautiful, and I thought they were amazing, and it's about vanity. The UN, for all of
0: its faults, of which there are many, is arguably the most legitimate organisation, international organisation out there. It does carry a lot of weight. It does carry a lot of legitimacy.
4: Um, you know, Don't let the, the best be the... I forget what that's the Don't let the best, you know, stop the good. This can do some good, Um
0: If you didn't have it at all, if you stopped it from working, that wouldn't be a positive way forward. But
3: isn't isn't there a basic hypocrisy in this? How does hypocrisy over human rights do good?
4: So, so I agree with you. There, There are all sorts of problems with this. But the question is, does it actually move the agenda in some respects forward occasionally, just sometimes? The answer is yes, it does. You have a choice, don't you, when it comes conflict. You can either shoot people Or you can try to constrain what they can do to satisfy their bodily needs. And it's at least uh, constraining bodily needs takes an awful lot longer than just shooting someone. And a lot can happen when you've got a lot of time.
5: These are the most punitive sanctions ever imposed on a nuclear proliferator in history. Kerry's absolutely right. I watched... A few experts testify yesterday before the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and a friend who was also watching emailed me to say, this is like watching a WWF match, because I have never seen such woefully ill-informed, incredibly um, simple-minded, short-sighted legislators in all of my experience looking at these things. And your point?
2: (laughs) Are
4: you surprised? (laughs)
0: Just some of the highlights from this first season of Aperitivo, uh, this, of course, being the final episode for now. Uh, be sure to check out our time shift player on monocle.com uh, for our whole archive of past shows. Uh, you can listen whenever you want, wherever you happen to be. Uh, time now for a little bit of music, and I think after that, little run-through. You'll forgive us this one. It's the end of the road, boys to men. Together forever You and ah, Just when you thought we might have peaked on Aperitivo, we bring you The End of the Road by Boys to Men, of course. Uh, you're with the show here on Monocle 24, uh, nearly the end, uh, not of the road, but of tonight's programme. Before we go, let's take a look at what's coming up. Uh, on the other shows tonight, I'm joined now here in Studio One by Daphne Denny and uh, Barbara Feeney the overseers of tonight's programmes. Uh, Daphne, let's start uh, with you. Uh, what, what have you got for us to look forward to coming up a little later? Well, uh, we are going to lead on a, a long New York Times
5: investigation that has shown that uh, J.P. Morgan has very strange ties to the daughter of the former Premier of China, um, very financial ties with her, as in $1.8 million dollars. Uh, worth of <laughs> contractual ties.
0: Intriguing. That'll be an interesting one to pick over.
5: Uh, it's quite interesting. Obviously, it's uh, not yet a bribery claim, but um, it's it's weird, at least. And weird, we'll we're be looking weird, at that with. Weirdness Paul
0: French. explained with Paul French. Uh, Barbara, what about on your program? Can you rival that on the weirdness? I can. Dates? Tom, we're back in Toronto. We were talking about Rob Ford earlier on the briefing, and we're back to Rob Ford again. There's been some interesting discussions today. Um, so just wait, wait, very, wait for very, the show. Very diplomatically put, Barbara interesting discussions is exactly what they've been uh, that is all I'm afraid tune into both those shows uh, Globus Asia at 20 hundred hours uh, Monocle Daily at 2200 uh, that is all we have time for on today's Aperitivo it's all for season one of the programme uh, the season was produced by Daniel Jacopelli researched by Alexa Furmanich our studio manager today was Chris Chilvers uh, my thanks in particular to my special guest Robert Fox and Matthew Jameson at 1900 hours uh, Monocle's food and drink show The Menu is coming your way Marco Sippi will be speaking to René Redzeppi it was not meant to be a published book that's the thing about it that it was actually a journal for myself to get out of the funk I was in after we won the first time the world's best restaurant (laughs) that's all coming your way on the the menu at the top of the hour Uh, next up though are the world news headlines with Jonathan Wheatley for this show and indeed this first season it's goodbye we'll see you with season 2 sometime in the new year I'm Tom Edwards have a great evening thanks for listening
5: Why this watch? This watch is a witness. A witness to words that moved nations. It's dead men faster, further. It's been worn by luminaries, visionaries, champions. It doesn't just tell time, it tells history. Rolex.